Hi everyone, it's EB1. Montgomery County Now wants to thank everyone who came out to our Racial Justice Now event on October 1st. We had a great turnout, learned a lot, and are really looking forward to our future panels that will cover Now's other core issues, reproductive freedom, constitutional equality, ending violence against women, LGBTQIA plus rights, and economic justice. Thank you so much again to all of our wonderful panelists, Senator Susan C. Lee, Delegate Marisa Morales, Gilda Yazi, Mimi Hassanin, and Lorianne Sales. We recorded the event and the majority of this episode will be the audio from the other night. Before we get into that though, we do have a woman of the week, Kimberly Williams Crenshaw. Kimberly is an internationally renowned scholar and is currently professor of law at both Columbia Law School and UCLA. Since we're focusing on racial justice and intersectional feminism this week, we wanted to choose a woman who's an expert in race and gender theory. In fact, it was because of a 1989 essay she wrote that the terms intersectional, intersectionality, and intersectional feminism are a common part of our lexicon today. Kimberly's work helped transform feminism to become more inclusive and more acknowledging of the various forms of exclusion many of our sisters face for a multitude of reasons. Intersectionality refers to the differing forms of oppressions or isms many people face due to the fact that they fall within more than one group in society. For instance, I, as a white woman, have been the victim of the misogyny that permeates the world we live in. I, as a white woman, however, have never had to face the double burden of discrimination that a black woman faces, or a Latina woman, or an Asian woman, etc. I, as an able-bodied woman, have never lived the experience of a woman of, with a disability, or a woman of color with a disability. Kimberly has said intersectionality was a lived reality before it became a term. When she came up with the diagnosis and course of treatment, she did not invent the ailment. As feminists, we strive to see the ways in which the world we live in impacts all of our sisters differently. We also recognize that the world often does not see those ways. This is highlighted in a 2016 TED Talk Kimberly gave on the urgency of intersectionality. In the TED Talk, she asks everyone in the audience to stand up. She instructs them that she will read off a list of names and ask them to sit down and stay seated when they hear a name they do not recognize. She says four names, Eric Garner, Mike Brown, Tamir Rice, and Freddie Gray. After saying those four names, she pauses and takes an assessment of the audience. About 50% of the audience is still standing after hearing all of those names. She then reads four more names, Michelle Cousseau, Tanisha Anderson, Aura Russer, and Megan Hockaday. At the end of that second group of names, there are just four people total standing. She explains the first set of names were black people who were killed by the police within the last two years at the time of recording. She then explains the second set of names were also black people who were killed by the police within the last two years at the time of recording. She says, quote, only one thing distinguishes the names that you know from the names that you don't, gender. 
Kimberly explains that violence against women and police brutality are both subjects that get talked about often. However, without the frame of mind to realize that an issue that affects black people, such as police brutality, also affects black people who are women, women who are black, those people are left out of the conversation. This is an excellent example of the need for intersectionality because without being conscious of all the people in a group that faces discrimination, such as women, people get left behind and in the case of her demonstration, they are literally ignored and or forgotten. Kimberly has explained, quote, there are many, many different kinds of intersectional exclusions, not just black women, but other women of color too. Not just people of color, but people with disabilities, immigrants, LGBTQ people, indigenous people. We highly recommend checking out Kimberly's work. We definitely use it to frame our feminism. Being intersectional feminists is a big reason why we decided to launch our panel discussion series with the subject of racial justice, because there cannot be gender justice until there is racial justice. On that note, we'll play for you our Racial Justice Now event. I just want to quickly say that you'll hear an awkward break in about an hour and 15 minutes. Unfortunately, we experienced some technical difficulties with the audio recording of the event, and some of it did get cut off. We unfortunately lost a good chunk of Delegate Morales' discussion, as well as a portion of our Q&A. Delegate Morales spoke about the Maryland Trust Act, which she championed. If it would have passed, the Maryland Trust Act would have prohibited the use of local resources to enforce federal immigration law, protected Marylanders from racial profiling, prohibited the state from participating in or implementing any kind of religious-based registry, and made it so immigrants would feel safe to report crimes to law enforcement regardless of status. She also spoke about the added difficulties undocumented women have to deal with when they are victims of crimes, such as sexual assault and domestic violence. Those type of crimes are already highly underreported for a variety of reasons. It's not easy to come forward, and it's especially not easy for undocumented women to seek out the help and justice of law enforcement when they have the fear of how their status will affect them. Delegate Morales also blew the minds of my mind, at least, and I think most people in the room's mind when she brought up the fact that elected officials in the Maryland House and Senate are not considered employees and are therefore not protected by sexual discrimination and sexual harassment policies in their workplace. Um... So that's something we definitely want to look more into as a chapter because we could not believe that was the case. Um, Delegate Morales is an excellent speaker and she's definitely a powerhouse, so we're really not happy the full impact of her on the panel was not captured in the recording. We hope maybe she'll come on 52 Women one day so we can get to talk to her some more and so you all can hear her some more. Anyway, without further ado, here's our Racial Justice Now panel discussion from October 1st. All right, hello everyone. Thank you for coming to our Racial Justice Now event. My name is Alyssa Blattman. I am co-president of Montgomery County Now. Yay! Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what a supportive group of people. Yes, I'm nervous. All right, for those of you who 
are unfamiliar with the mission now, I'm just going to give a brief overview of who we are and what we do. Uh, we're an advocacy organization with a National Action Center in Washington, D.C., where Gildo works. Uh, we have state and local chapters across the country. Montgomery County now is the biggest chapter in the state of Maryland and one of the biggest local chapters in the United States. We're growing bigger all the time, especially in light of the current administration. I'm sure you're all a fan of. <laughs> uh, we're thrilled so many Montgomery County feminists are feeling inspired to become more active in the fight for women's rights. If you are here and you're not yet a member of Montgomery County now, you may join today. Uh, you can pull out your smartphones and go to our website. It's mcmdnow.org slash join. That's MC for Montgomery County, MD for Maryland, and now the National Organization for Women. mcmdnow.org slash join. And uh, for those of you who are listeners of our podcast, um, which I'll talk about in a second, you'll know that I frequently forget to plug our social media, so I'm just going to do that now before I forget. <laughs> Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at MCMD Now. And if you would like to live tweet the event, you can do so with the hashtag Racial Justice Now. And be sure to tag us in a post or add us in a post. Alright, so back to now because I gave a little interjection there. I now have six core issues on which we focus racial justice, economic justice, LGBTQIA plus rights, reproductive rights constitutional equality, which means passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, and ending violence against women. Since Montgomery County now is so close to Washington, D.C., we are often able to participate in demonstrating and advocating for change at the federal level. Several, several of our members, including myself, were at the March for Black Women yesterday, and it was very inspiring, to say the least. Uh, while larger demonstrations such as that are invaluable. We also want to make sure that we are making a difference right here in Montgomery County and making sure that all of our members and all of our community uh, feel welcome and uh, live the best lives that they can. In this spirit, we have planned six panel discussion and Q&As over the next year, one for each of now six court issues. Given the current political climate, we cannot think of a better start to the series than racial justice now. As some of you may know, our chapter produces a weekly podcast, which I just mentioned. Uh, it's called 52 Women, and it's hosted by myself, uh, Alyssa Walsley, my co-president, and Jenny Rose Della DeFore, who's our chapter secretary, but really more like an uh, honorary third co-president, but my name's not Alyssa, so she's not allowed to, <laughs> not allowed to have the title. Um, the podcast features local news, national news and uh, woman of the week. We do a bio for woman of the week each week. You can find our, our podcast on our website, mcmdnow.org slash 52 women on iTunes or wherever else you like to get your podcast. We will be releasing the audio from this event as a podcast this week. And we are very lucky and grateful to have five one is coming, amazing honorary women of the week here, and Jenny Rose is gonna let you know more about them. Thank you, Alyssa. So first up, we have Senator Susan C. Lee of the Maryland Senate. Senator Lee, an attorney, was elected to the Maryland State Senate in November 2014 after serving 13 years in the Maryland House of Delegates, and is the first Asian American senator elected to the Maryland Senate and first minority senator 
Senator to the Montgomery County delegation to Annapolis. She is the Deputy Majority Whip in the Senate, a member of the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee and Joint Committee on Cybersecurity, Information Technology and Biotechnology, Chair of the Maryland Legislative Asian American and Pacific Islander Caucus, Chair of the Maryland Cybersecurity Council Subcommittee on Law, Policy, and Legislation, and President Emeritus of the Women Legislators of the Maryland General Assembly Incorporated. In 2005, Senator Lee received the Leadership Recognition Award from Maryland Now. And next up we have Delegate Morris A. Morales, Maryland House of Delegates. Delegate Morales was the first Latina representing District 19 to take that office and is currently the youngest Latina to serve at the state level in the country. During her time in Annapolis, Delegate Morales has sponsored legislation to reform our criminal justice system, protect our immigrant communities, protect workers' rights, and combat the rape culture facing our country. Delegate Morales was recently recognized by the Maryland National Organization for Women for her leadership on women's and immigrants' issues for her work as the lead sponsor of the Maryland Trust Act, which would have protected immigrant and Muslim Marylanders from the hateful anti-immigrant orders from the Trump administration. Okay, and then we have Gilda Yazzie, Vice President, National Organization for Women. As an enrolled member of the Navajo Nation, it's natural for Gilda to be a feminist leader. About her heritage, Gilda says, feminism is in our DNA. We are a matrilineal society. She has been a lifelong advocate for racial justice and civil rights. And she cares deeply about tribal and indigenous issues in particular, and is an expert on federal and state issues as they relate to Native concerns. Now we have Mimi Hassanin, Senior Fellow at the Montgomery County Office of Community Partnerships and Liaison to the Middle Eastern Community. Mimi serves as a board member for the Sandy Spring Museum and Emerge Maryland and is an elected member of the Montgomery County Democratic Central Committee. She is also the proud mother of three children and Housing prices differ 
between Bethesda and Germantown. And I think about how many of my white friends claim to be colorblind, but are unable to discuss race without extreme discomfort. I think about people's attitudes about certain neighborhoods, certain schools, and certain kids, which personally breaks my heart the most. Uh, we have our problems here too, and if we don't confront these problems and talk about them openly and honestly, and most importantly, allow our sisters of color to lead us toward the solutions and let us know how we can be allies and advocates for them at the most local levels of government in our own communities, then all this hand-wringing that we do about the goings-on in the White House um, will just be lip service, really. Um, so that's why I wanted to convene this panel today so that we could hear some honest answers about um, questions. We're all progressives in this room. We're all um, good at voting the way that progressives do when it comes to racial justice. We're not always great at discussing these issues openly, um, understanding what responsibility we have, and understanding how we can be followers of these amazing women of color and, and follow their leadership and um, let them tell us what we should do. So without further ado, I'm gonna stop talking and let them, <laughs> let them do the talking um, so that we can find out more. Um, so we're just gonna give the mic to you if I don't unplug it. No, I didn't. I didn't. Um, <laughs> great job. Great job. Bob Barker, watch out. Um, okay. So, so we're just going to pass the microphone down so each panelist can just say hi to you. And then we have some specific questions based on the expertise of these wonderful women, although they could probably answer, all of them could probably answer all of these questions. And then we have some more general questions about racial justice and um, how we can be allies in the county. Thank you, Alyssa, too. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, as you know, my name is Gilda Yaz, and I am a full-blood American Indian. I'm a Navajo Indian. I grew up in a matrilineal society, which means that all the heritage and all the lineage goes to the women. And that's why I'm a natural feminist. And I was born that way, so I figured now is my home. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. Oh, I can't wait to tell my story. Uh, I am here because I want to tell you all about the Muslim women. And uh, we're not oppressed or depressed like people uh, think I may walk behind my husband in the street, but he walks behind me at home. Yeah. So, uh, I can't wait to uh, educate all the other Muslim women about our right in the Quran versus the culture. Uh, and I can't wait to have my wings and fly and, and, and really uh, be elected like uh, maybe the president of the United States. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Hi, uh, I'm Senator Susan Lee. I represent District 16 in Maryland State Senate. Um, I, um, I want to tell you about a little bit about my background. Um, my grandparents uh, immigrated here from China. Uh, for, for some crazy reason, they went down to Texas, both <laughs> <the> grandparents, <laughs> okay. Uh, so my father was born in this country, and he was a U.S. Uh, Navy World War II veteran, the greatest generation, he used his uh, GI Bill to go to college, and my mother came over here uh, from China when she's 10 years of age. They were escaping a war-torn China at the time. And uh, for some reason, both grandparents they actually went down to Texas, and I was born there. 
but I was raised in Montgomery County. Uh, thank goodness. <laughs> Anybody from Texas here? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, Julian, you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. okay. But I'm really proud to have uh, been brought up in Montgomery County. I went to public schools here. I went to Hoover and Churchill. I don't know if anyone went to. Oh, right, Churchill. Yes, Bulldogs. And, uh, I, you know, I, I got, I'm an attorney, but um, I got involved in politics to help other people because I wanted uh, our community to have input in laws and policies that, that uh, affect us. And before that, um, with the Asian American community, we were always responding, doing damage control. But uh, I, I thought it would be better, but I never thought I'd run for office. I was just kind of pushed into it, and, and, I, and I'm glad I did. Um, I'm here with my uh, dear friend, Judge Chun Pak, who's like the godfather of our community. He's a, he's a guy, but he understands our issues too. <laughs> so, so we're okay. But we, together we formed the Coalition of Asian Pacific American Democrats of Maryland statewide group. We wanted to empower our community. But you can empower it with your Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter. But as long as you get involved in the political process. Before I got elected, I did pro bono work. I uh, represented like, you know, some people on sexual harassment cases. Uh, you know, getting helping uh, immigrants get citizenship or defend themselves against unfair charges. So, uh, I'm not going to go on and on because, uh, you know, I, uh, my, I, you, you talked about my background already. Um, I think that we're all in this together, regardless of our background. And with the current attack against all our different communities, I don't know what what community President Trump has not attacked. He's vilified just about every one of us. And I think uh, we have to stick together, no matter what background we're from, because we are all in this together. But let us work on those issues that we have in common, because to, together we are stronger. And I'll, I'll pass this on now to Lori. And please ask us uh, questions, because this is what we're here for. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. My name is Lorian Sales, and I'm just happy to be here. I think this is an important conversation, and I'm glad we're having it, especially hearing from the woman's perspective, who's also um, almost always the, an afterthought. So I'm glad that we're focusing on women and the intersection of politics and race and discrimination. So I think it'll be an interesting conversation. I'm a resident of Gaithersburg, and I've been very active in the community. Um, I used to lead the African American Democratic Club of Montgomery County and worked a lot on combining the communities of color and really taking a closer look at the issues that affected our communities. Um, and I think we did a really good job of kind of overlapping some of the issues and seeing the inter intersectionality of just, you know, the diversity of the African American community, the Caribbean, and the African descendant community um, um, and working with the different Asian communities and the intersectionality of the Hispanic community. So it's good that we're all here to uh, represent those perspectives. And I look forward to having a very frank conversation with everyone and hope I can answer your questions to the best of my ability. Um, and I've worked in a lot on education issues. Um, economic equity, so I think this is going to be a very good discussion. Thank hey. you. Good evening, everyone. How are we feeling today? <laughs> <laughs> Fired up and ready to go, like President Obama, right? <laughs> um, 
How, oh my gosh, how much do we miss him? Oh, I miss so him a lot. Oh, yeah. I'm Delegate Marisa Morales. I represent District 19, parts of Silver Spring, Rockville, Gaithersburg, Olney, and Durwood. Um, this, I'm living the dream. However, this dream requires a lot of work and an opportunity cost, um, for sure. <laughs> um, thank you so much to the Alyssas, Montgomery County um, National Organization for Women. Um, thank you so much for providing this space. I think it's extremely important, um, and it's an honor to be up here with these amazing women, trailblazers in their own right. Um, I think that this session, if there's one really small silver lining um, from the Trump madness <laughs> is that I really have seen um, this kind of, you know, energizing um, trend. And, you know, this session, this past session, we were for the first time, and actually the Senator didn't um, talk about this because she's humble, but they founded the, for the first time, the Legislative Asian American um, Caucus in the House and Senate. So that was wonderful. Thank you. And for the first time, we were able to work um, as a tri-caucus um, for, you know, an effort that really needed to happen um, because the person in the governor's house wasn't um, courageous enough to do it. So right. us elected in the Senate and the House thought we, we needed to, and I was the, the proud lead sponsor, but mm -hmm. couldn't have got that far, gotten that far without my sisters and brothers from the Black Caucus, the Asian Caucus. Um, the Muslim American community was there with us, um, you know, and hopefully we'll get more elected so that we can also create that caucus. Yes. <laughs> and uh, there's so much that I'm proud of. However, it's just every day I feel like my spirits just keep, they can't get any, any lower with the with 45 up in the White House, just saying the things that he says, you know, I mean, this discussion could go on forever, but um, just wanted to transmit to you my energy, my passion. Um, I've been door knocking. I've just, that's the only way that I can get re-energized, talking to real people. You know, even if I have to get yelled at because they don't, you know, they're like, hey, like I have to yell at somebody. You know, Congress isn't doing it for me. And, and I understand. Um, and people are frustrated. You know, people are living paycheck to paycheck. Um, if there's one stat that has stayed with me after all these years, um, I went to a conference right after like freshman year um, as, a as, a, as a legislator, not as something else. <laughs> I went to this conference and there was a survey that was given to just random high schoolers across the country and there were two questions that were asked. There was a question that was asked and the two most popular answers were the following. The question was, what does it mean to be rich in America today? And the two most popular answers were living in a house that is paid off and going on vacation for a week with my family. Mm -hmm. That's the reality of, of, of folks. And so, you know, if that doesn't energize you, if that doesn't, you know, make you, make your heart beat, beat a little bit faster, then I don't know what does. And as a party, as a Democratic Party, we should be lifting the most vulnerable. And right now, it just so happens that the people that look like me, the people that look like Lorianne, the people that look like uh, Senator Lee, and everybody else in this panel, it just happens to be that right now. But 500 years from now, maybe it will be, maybe, you know, the white race. We don't know, but right now, the vulnerable communities are those of color, and we need our white allies and everybody together because the party of the right has been dividing and conquering for way too long. Mm -hmm. yeah, Thank, you. Right. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so we're going to jump into our panel discussion here. And the first question 
Uh, first few questions we have, we're going to go to Senator Lee, put you on the spot there. Sure. Um, the first one is, besides demonstrating and voting, what can people in Montgomery County do to affect change on the gender pay gap, especially for women of color? And we know you're an expert in this area, so we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Certainly. Thank you. Thank you for raising that question. Uh, in the legislature last year in 2016, uh, we passed the Maryland Equal Pay for Equal Work Act. Um, it was a bill that I was a lead sponsor. Um, it was not easy because there's still a, a culture in Annapolis that doesn't think that there is a pay gap, but there is. Nationwide, uh, women make 78 cents for every dollar a guy makes. And in Maryland, we're a little bit better. Uh, we make, uh, I guess it's about, um, 85% for every dollar a guy makes, and for women of color, it's even worse. Uh, fortunately, for Asian Americans, it's 82 cents for every dollar a guy makes. For African American women, it's 69%, and for Latinas, it's 47%, which is just outrageous. And, you know, you know, any gap is not only unequal, it's unacceptable. And so, you know, instead of us waiting around for that do-nothing Congress that has no backbone to act, and definitely can't wait around for this president, in 2016, we introduced, we, we reintroduced this bill, it was the second year. Uh, we, we wanted to not wait for Congress, because the Paycheck Fair, Fairness Act was not going anywhere in Congress. So we did this, we, we got a whole group of stakeholders, including Montgomery County and Maryland now. Can you give them a hand for participating? I see somebody in the audience right now, like Jeanette, I saw she, you know, they came down there, Linda Mahoney, uh, you know, all, all the, she, my she heroes, they came down, they kicked ass, you know, went up there, and they gave really great testimony, uh, as a compelling testimony as to why we need this. Because there, uh, one thing that women don't have is transparency in the workplace. If you don't know what the guys are making for comparable work, you can't negotiate your salaries. You, you cannot get equal pay. So what we did, this law would prohibit uh, employers from firing you or retaliating against you if you just asked or discussed your wages. And believe it or not, there were some employers firing people because they asked. Lily Ledbetter did not know that she was getting a lot less for the same work as her counterpart, male counterparts. And, and by the time she found out, the statute of limitations had already run. So our bill uh, has a statute of limitations, but it's not long enough. It was a compromise, three years from the last discriminatory paycheck, uh, which is stronger than the federal act that exists today. Our law is the second strongest pay equity law in the nation. So we, we're hoping that'll make a difference because you know this is, this is something for not just women of color, but for, for women, elderly women too. Because you know how long it's gonna take to make up that gap? By that time you'd be dead, right? And you could be using that money to uh, spend on food, clothes, housing, education, essentials. But you know, this sets us back. This makes us go backward, not forward. So uh, we're hoping that it'll make a difference. It just passed last year. The governor, in his wisdom, did not veto it. Which, uh, <laughs> we were uh, we were all holding our breath. And uh, and Marseille was a co-sponsor of this bill too in the House. She worked very hard to get it passed too. Um, we had to fight. We had to, it was a, it was a real battle, but we did. It just very. It wasn't. I don't think it was veto proof, right? But he didn't veto it. So that that to his credit, I, I give credit for that. But you know, this this bill 
allows the workplace to be not only transparent, but based on merit, experience, and increase, increases productivity. So we're really proud to get that then. We, we did another bill this year that dealt with pay equity too, to follow up on, which is to not allow uh, employers as a condition to get interviewed or get employed to have to uh, produce your salary history. Because you know, many women of color, and, and many women too, and older women, face discriminatory pay in the past. So you don't want this level of discriminatory baseline pay following you throughout your entire career. Because you don't want to go and, 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 and you know, say, oh, it's so low, you know, and it's not really based on merit or, or your background or experience. But that bill didn't go forward, because like the pay equity bill, we have to educate um, some of our less than enlightened colleagues out there. And um, so I don't want to say that they're dull lights, but you, you, just, you just say it, okay? So, but um, to me, it's common sense. And then we also passed uh, this year the Earn Sick Leave Act, which unfortunately the governor vetoed, which, uh, which would allow individuals to earn five days of sick leave per year so they can go and take care of themselves if they get sick or their family members or uh, they can, um, they can't, they'll prevent others in their workplace from getting sick because they're, they're going home. And domestic violence victims can use it to take care of whatever they gotta take care of during that time. So we were very happy about that. But there's other laws too that I, I don't wanna bore you with because there's a whole lot of things. We still got a lot of work ahead of us, all women and women of color too, and older women too. And, um, you know, a lot of times in the legislature, they always try to marginalize uh, some of the work that us women legislators do. Marse can, can attest to that. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they, they say we're nice people. They're nice, but we're not effective, okay? I, I've got that argument. When I was walking one day, someone told me, oh, yeah, I heard about you. You're a nice person, but you're not effective. You know, I did, wow, okay. Uh, what's all that about, okay? Uh, How did I get all these bills passed? Yeah, right? yeah, right. So, so that's the problem we have. And then the press out there, they're kind of like uh, reinforcing the stereotype because they don't go and bother to research about our women's issues or in our communities of color. They go interview some guy who is totally out of it, you know, not a community leader, doesn't know the issues, and just something, says something off the hip, and that represents our entire community. So the, the press has got to become more diverse too. We gotta to have more women reporters. Mm -hmm. And we gotta have more women uh, of color reporters too. Because when I saw, what's her name, uh, Joy, Joy Reed? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and, and yeah. I said, wow, way to go, girl. Uh, you know, I said, finally, and I'm seeing that on uh, NSNBC too. Yeah, There's knows. finally more women and women color too. And, and that, that makes a difference in how uh, Mm -hmm. reporting is done and getting more in depth. But let me share this, uh, let me not blah, 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 and let me uh, share this with Lisa. Thank you. And thank you for letting me bring that up. Uh, sure. We actually have two more questions for you. They can, they can combine. Oh, okay. Oh, sure. yeah, yeah, you kind of combined the second one, which was, uh, or you started to touch on what upcoming legislation we should be focused yeah, on as a chapter yeah. or as community members. Um, and then uh, also touching on that, follow, uh, most people in the room, uh, in this room are engaged citizens and we call our legislators, we write, we attend meetings um, and we were wondering if you could tell us, also Delegate Morales could speak to this, what the best way to contact our legislators would, and representatives would be, the oh, most effective oh, sure. way. Yeah, yeah, just, just call us, email us. I read all my email. 
uh, to the you know to the horror of my staff because they know they know that I know what's going on um, sometimes and and so, you know I think it's important to know what your constituents uh, what's important to them and in my district women vote and they are really on top of things and they are informed so uh, it makes me really proud to represent district 16 and I'm sure in your district that's the same but write us and also uh, channel your efforts into groups like Montgomery County now and Maryland now uh, and the women's uh, Democratic uh, you know caucus uh, the WDC uh, women's woman it's called woman's Democratic yes. Club not women I and and things yes. like the Maryland Women's Law Center uh, which helped me with the pay equity bill working families uh, you know, this pay equity bill was not just one, you know, couple of legislators. We, we had all the stakeholders. We had a wonderful broad-based coalition that was statewide that just wasn't women's groups, but religious, interfaith, mm -hmm. uh, Asian-American, African-American, Latino, um, you know, faith-based, LGBT, everything. Everything is a coalition effort. You can't do it by yourself. That's why I'm saying we can't do it by ourselves. We have to work together. And, uh, you know, but the, the critical part is uh, M-Law, a group called M-Law, Maryland Legislative uh, Agenda for, for Women. They're, they're going to come out with a list of priorities, and please support those. And some of them will be Marseille and my bills. Marseille and I work a lot on human trafficking and domestic violence. So support those. But please come to the committee when we have the hearing on the bills. Because uh, M Law, Maryland Legislative Agenda for Women, and uh, I, Reggie, you know about that because you're involved in that too, and, so, and Jennifer, you also do too. Jennifer Martin, who's with the teachers. Thank, thank, Jennifer, thank you for what you do. Let's give a hand for Jennifer Martin. Yeah. Yes. She, she is tireless. She is uh, the go-to person with the teachers. You know, teachers, they, they work very hard mm -hmm. to nurture and educate our kids. Mm -hmm. And, and they're, not, they're, they're often not given that uh, acknowledgement, but they're also not paid enough, and they've they got mm -hmm. all sorts of issues. But they're committed because they really believe in our kids. So thank you, Jennifer, and thank, thank you, you so much. But um, we, we just have to work together and come to the committee hearing because the most perilous part of a bill is during the committee. Uh, a bill gets assigned to a committee and it gets a hearing. There's pro and cons offered and then the committee votes on it. If it votes for it, it gets out, goes to the chamber, it gets voted on, then it goes to the other side, goes to the center chamber, gets to the same old thing. So uh, come to the hearings and, and provide testimony. And that's, that's a, and Marcy, you wanna add something to that? Sure, just very quickly, cause I know we're trying to get some questions to all the panelists here. I would just say, if you want to, I think a, cumulative efforts create the most impact. So if you are a part of an organization and if you want a list of organizations, we'd be happy to give you. Um, the best time to go to Annapolis is, I would say at the latest, before the first week of March. Then that's when crossover happens. So if you really want to have an impact on how a bill is going to get through, um, I would lobby the people that are in the committee. So doing your homework, figuring out you know wh what stage where the bill is, and then talking to the members of that committee you can very quickly, you know, you can know who your allies are. You can say, who are the problematic folks? Who do I need to go and talk to? And if you can get constituents from that person's district, that's even better. Go through what? Say it again? Go through 
go through what to monitor the bill? So you well yeah you can go to the Maryland Legislative website Maryland okay. General Assembly okay. and you can monitor the bills there okay. it'll tell you what committee it's in um, but when you visit Annapolis and you you can very quickly identify your allies on that committee you know be it uh, Prince George's Montgomery County Baltimore City Democrat uh, delegate or senator and then you can ask them who are the problematic legislators. And so then you figure out, you know, what district they're in. And if you can get constituents to come to their office and tell them, you know, this bill is important to us um, for X, Y, Z reasons, then that's very, very effective. And like the senator said, following the stages, being there during the hearings and talking to the legislators before the hearing, that's, that would be really great. Yeah. Something I love about women is that we're really good at organizing. So mm. uh, I feel like that's like a call to, to yeah. order, right? Yeah. yeah. Get some food. Head on down. Um, I'm just gonna skip around so that we keep the mic on one yeah. side. Sure. Clumsy, sorry. <laughs> so we'll do Gilda and Mimi, and then I'll pass it to Alyssa for Lorian and Marseille. That's okay. Um, hi, Gilda. Hi. <laughs> uh, so I want to ask what. You can give me more than three or fewer, but I thought three was, I don't know why I thought three was a magic number here. Uh, I wanted to know what our top three priorities should be as feminists who want to help American Indian women be allies to American Indian women. Um, and then I wanted to know if there was any upcoming legislation, either at the federal level or, I don't, Gilda is more focused on the federal level since she's at national now. Um, <laughs> That we could um, that we can support to help our American Indian sisters. I don't. I know very little. This is going to be very, very helpful to me about okay. access and stuff. Okay. Okay. So this is my topic, and I've got to give you three walking points. Can you talk okay. about it, please? Okay. So first of all, um, the way Indian legislation works is it's on a very different level. Say with uh, federal legislation, it impacts all the tribes across the country. Then you got like state legislation, you got um, and local tribal legislation. So it's not just one, but the one we're going to focus on is uh, federal legislation. And so say say like um, about a couple weeks ago, I went to a hearing for a Senate hearing, which is good about violence against women. Okay, so right now there's a bill in the Senate concerning. Um, violence against women that impact Native American tribes. And so this hearing was just for a national hotline that impacts um, women who, you know, get abused by their spouses or they experience some kind of violence within the community and they can call a national hotline, which is a major step forward because most of the tribal legislation is local to that tribe and maybe it doesn't impact all the tribes. So this is a real, I don't know the numbers, but I can look it up and get it back to you. And when I was at this hearing, it was also good because I did ask, well, how does this impact um, the current Trump administration? And they told, and I asked them, it was um, the National Congress of American Indians, which is a big um, lobby force for Americans. I asked them, well, how does this impact us directly having uh, 45 in, in the White House, and they said, well, you know what, he's curious. So he did, really doesn't know a whole lot about Indians, but at least he's curious, so he hasn't thrown us under the bus yet. <laughs> okay. But we're waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, because that also ties into with um, health education issues concerning HIV or any kind of um, disease that um, might impact um, women given childbirth. And you know, it's, it's really important for American Indian tribes since we're a very small minority in the United States that are, that are actually a 100% American Indian, which I am. And I also still maintain my home on my reservation and you know, my family's there and I, I consider that my home. It's really important that we um, pay attention to the ways that the federal government still promotes genocide. You know, that's a big issue. And it, it really is because most of our heritage and most of our beliefs stem from the fact that we really um, believe in our family unit. And our family is, um, you know, like on the highest level. So through all those actions, if you combine them all with just being involved and getting a hold of your senators and your congresspeople, just keep after them. Let them know that you're concerned about these issues. That's the best way to support us. Thank you. I just, I just want to say reproductive rights are human rights and that's healthcare. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All these things that we don't think about. Um, so I'm going to hand the mic to, to Mimi. Hey, uh, just a point of clarification. Yeah. The Trump administration not having thrown Native Americans under the bus. I mean, I think uh, Bears Ears National Monument is one case in point, restricting the, uh, the, the, the amount of land set aside demonstrates the Trump administration's insensitivity to Native yeah. American. Right. Yes, that, that is a good point because the Bears Ears was, you know, promoted by like the Navajo, the Hopi, the Apache, the Ute, who all populate that area. And, you know, they want it because each of these tribes, they each have a different spiritual connection to the Bears Ears, you know, depending upon what they believe in their tribe. And uh, the Bears Ears originally was going to be way larger than what... Uh, the Trump administration wants to be, so they're trying to downsize that monument. They even may eliminate it because you never know what they'll do, but that's what impact. That's why, you know, it's, it has to do with like the BLM, you know, BLM land is just not one issue. It's like all of these things, environmental land issues, all the electricity, all the mining issues that go into, you know, around the Bears Ears, because we got to remember the fact that we had the gold rush and um, we have minerals out there that, you know, the government wants to sell the leases to these other people. You know, it's, it's just not one issue. Yeah, my, point, my point is that I think the Obama administration demonstrated a sensitivity to Native American issues, changing Mount McKinley to Denali, you know, the original name. And I think the Trump administration is, is actively researching how to reverse Obama administration. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's true. That you know, he could have implemented that a little bit sooner than he did. I thought we weren't supposed to take down monuments, but I guess we're <laughs> only some of those are supposed to stay up. Okay. <laughs> um, no, that was great. I'm so interested. I just, I'm going to get ready tomorrow. I'm going to okay. come in your office and ask you a lot of questions. Um, okay, so Mimi. Oh, okay. Hi. hi. Um, so can you just generally first talk about your experience of coming to the U.S. and and Give us an idea of how people in Montgomery County can be supportive of Muslim immigrants. 
who moved to our communities. All right, that's great. I'm going to tell my story. Uh, but uh, first, before I tell my story, um, when we talk about uh, women's rights and stuff like that, I always tell those fans that we give birth to you, okay? We are the one who teach you how to tie your tie. So don't come back and tell me I cannot run the country. We run our run the country. So it's not about women are not capable of doing things. We are capable. It's just that now, and I'm so happy that we have Emerge Maryland now, who are training a woman yes, to run for public office, because each candidate I see, they know what they need to do, but they just need to put it in perspective, okay? They know how to do it, but they need to know Turn right, turn left, look at this street. It's just gestures and stuff like that. But we, I told them, we run our household, we raise the kids, we can run the country. So that's, yes, that's, that's, that's right. right. Uh, so with uh, equity pay, uh, unfortunately, you know, actually in Egypt, that's not an issue. In Egypt, women get paid the same amount of, uh, of the men, yes. But the issue of the discrimination that we are oppressed, oppressed, we don't have the rights that, uh, uh, you know, the men have. Uh, but that is culture. That is not a religion. So our government, like you know, in the Saudi Arabia, women cannot drive and all that stuff. This has really nothing to do with the religion. This is what the country wants to do. And now when I heard uh, Trump is saying, uh, you know, attacking women, I said, is, did he learn from Saudi Arabia? Did he really uh, enjoy the food there and all that stuff? I mean, should I go back home now? Why did I, why did I leave? Uh, but I've been here 47 years. This is my home. I have three children and 15 grandchildren. That's the only home they know. So I cannot go back, you know. So, uh, so now telling, sharing my story. Um, I immigrated here 47 years ago, and actually my marriage was arranged. So I was shipped to my husband, uh, and I didn't know whether what's gonna, you know, how my marriage is gonna, ha you know, work. But I do remember uh, we saw each other's pictures, and uh, he didn't look cute. And uh, <laughs> I told my father, uh, uh, he doesn't look cute, Dad. Uh, you know, we call it Baba. We don't call that. Uh, and uh, is it okay if I change my mind? And you know, because the, the marriages has to be arranged and all that stuff. And you know, my mother-in-law have to touch me and see if I have a real ear. So I went through the test. And, uh, and then when, uh, so he looked at me and he said, a man is a man. If he can provide you, that's all you care about. Look doesn't matter. So, okay. <laughs> so uh, when I came and I, I said what at my uncle's house, I told my uncle's wife, you know, I said, Auntie, can I please look at from upstairs when he's coming? And if he looks cute, I'm coming down. If he doesn't, uh, tell him I'm not here. <laughs> we cannot do that. You are destroying our honor. So I said, oh, okay. So, but I did see him from the window and looked cute. So I was okay. So uh, I, I think uh, our, marriage, uh, our marriage was based on respect. Uh, and I think love came uh, later, you know. Uh, but, uh, but now we have uh, three children and 15 grandchildren. 
When I came to America, I did not speak a word of English. And, uh, you know, when you don't speak, uh, you know, you have your community who teach you uh, how to, you know, how to, you know, work and learn and stuff like that. So uh, I was newly married, so people come and, you know, to, uh, congratulate me and all that stuff. So my neighbor, my friends, the Egyptian friends says, oh, Mimi, God bless America. Everything here in America is so fast. You know, it's good. Everything is ready. Uh, so when you bake a cake, you don't, you know, you, you, get, you have to give them something when they come to visit you. Uh, you don't have to do from scratch. Uh, you just go to the store and uh, go buy a, a, a cake mix and just uh, to put two eggs and water and put it together and put it in an oven and you got a delicious cake. That's easy. Love. Uh, that's why we immigrated to America. <laughs> I, said, I said, okay. So I go to the store and I'm looking and to see what is the best looking uh, cakes on uh, and I, you know, oh, this looks like, no, this. So I picked up a box with a cherry, big cherry and pineapple, uh, I mean, pineapple and cherry in the middle. I said, oh, this is going to be so delicious. Go home, uh, uh, you know, got the pan, followed the instruction, put the eggs and all that. And I put the, that doesn't look like it's going to be, you know, the batter is not enough. Oh, maybe it will grow in America. They say America, everything is good, you know. So I put it in the oven, maybe two seconds, and I smelled burning stuff. What did I buy? And you think? Jello. Nope. The frosting box. <laughs> so now your homework is to go back and look. You will not find a delicious look cake in the box. It will be the frosting box. So moving forward. Uh, <laughs> I said, I gotta learn English, right? So we moved to uh, Maryland. We lived in DC. Uh, uh, my hu why did we immigrate here? Uh, because we were middle class, and my family, my husband wants to run a business. I mean, wanted to do a business. And we know back home we will not have a choice because unless you're rich, uh, 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 you're not gonna make it. We in Egypt we don't have the um, the race discrimination. We have social discrimination. Um, I never look at the people and judge them by their skin color, uh, uh, but we have, uh, uh, you know, are you rich, you're poor, and stuff like that. So if you're rich with the government, you stay rich. If you're poor, you stay poor. Middle class, uh, you can make it, but you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it, you, there's not a good chance. So that, my husband was really an entrepreneur, and he wanted to make a business. So he's, we heard about America is a great country, and your dream comes true, but unfortunately Donald Trump is ruining everything now. Uh, so that's why we came. Uh, we came with $200 in our pocket. Now we own five business. We have 125 employees, and, uh, and we made it. Uh, but when he came, we didn't speak the language, so he wanted to come up with a good niche that he does not compete with others. So we were living in D.C., so he thought about opening uh, a printing shop that they can print in Arabic. Because in the D.C. area, there were all those embassies, and they need some people to print the materials in your Arabic and stuff like that. So he came up with this idea. We had a small room in the basement of a big building. Um, and then from that small room, uh, we moved to Ellen M Street, and then we moved to the Watergate. 
Uh, so after he made the money from the printing, he says, yeah, I don't really like the printing. I want to do the international business. By that time, he already had a relationship with the embassies and stuff like that. So he started importing and exporting machines uh, to uh, Egypt and uh, the Middle East country and, and vice versa. So that was my story. My husband is always an, a business entrepreneur. He taught my kids the same thing, and, and the business concept went through. So uh, when uh, we, we moved to Maryland, because we couldn't stay in DC, because we had kids and we couldn't live in the same apartment if you have children, and I had the kids now, so he said, you stay home, you raise the kids, I provide the money. Well, that's normal for me. I mean, I don't care. So uh, I stayed home, and uh, and uh, and I remember my daughter uh, when she was when she was five years old. I went to school, and she comes home after first week with this back to school night paper, and she's looking at me and she said, "Mom, you have to go to the school today." Teacher said, "You must go." So I looked at her and said, what did you do wrong? You've only been there a week. What could you have possibly have done wrong? Because I'm thinking, like back home, we don't get engaged with this, uh, our teachers. They're high, you know, I mean, you go to the school and if your kid's in trouble. So here PTA is the backbone of the school, right? I mean, so I go to my neighbor, she, she was, her name is Tonya, I never forget. Uh, she was my lifesaver, so I go to her and I tell her, uh, you know, talking broken English, me, Hawaii school, go, you know, so she figures out that, you know, I need to go to school. She goes, yeah, 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 oh, it's, uh, you have to go, you're going to learn about everything, blah, 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 you must come, I'll pick you up. I said, okay, I'll go tell my husband, she told me to go, he said, don't listen to this American people, we want our kids to graduate. I said, no, I want to go, so I go dress up put my makeup, my jewelry, because I am going to meet the principal and the teachers and everybody, right? So I'm walking through the hallway. Now I remember why everybody was looking, you know. So she come to pick me up, and uh, she opened the door, and she looked at me. She said, oh, you're, you changed your mind. You're not coming. I said, why? She said, you dress looking like going to a party. You know, it's a boring night. Go put your sneakers and your jacket. I couldn't. I couldn't because that was not my identity. That's not who I am. And a lot of immigrant family feel the same way. It's the way that we were raised that we have to respect and, and do stuff like that. So I'll make a story short. I go and I sit in the auditorium and the principal gets up and share his story. You know, the school is great. Blah, blah, blah. And then I'm pretending I understand every word, <laughs> I understand nothing. And then we break up, we go to the classroom, and the teacher said that's the same thing. Oh, and the kids are wonderful. Oh, hi, Miss Hudson, you know, it is wonderful. She gives her, you know, speech, and hmm, hmm, didn't understand anything. But I saw two tables, and I understood she needed help. So I waited till everybody, you know, all the spirits have so many questions. They want to know what they should do. Um, and then I went to her, I said, me, Hawaii, the mom. She said, oh yeah, Hawaii is great, da, da, da. I said, me, want help. She said, oh great, we have Halloween table, we have Valentine table. You're talking a foreign language to me. I do not celebrate Halloween, I do not celebrate Valentine. So she looked at me, she said, ah, you know, you can tell from a body language when someone doesn't really know what to do with you. So uh, she looked at me, she says, oh, okay. Uh, library, library, books. So I understood I can go and help in the library. Sure, sure. Tomorrow, me, come, library. She said, no, wait a minute. Can you bake? 
I said, yeah, I'm a good baklava. She looked at me, she was Greek. She has baklava and all the broken English came and we were comparing the Greek baklava and the Egyptian baklava. So I baked baklava for a PTA. They made so much money. Till uh, my kids graduate, they called me and told me that could you please take your baklava again? Because that was a whole big resource of our uh, uh, money coming. Uh, so uh, food is a universal language. So when you are talking with immigrant family, uh, find something that they can relate with you. Hasn't she, haven't I connected with her on the food level? I probably would have walked away and never come back. But because we talked, there was such, she was some talking about something I know, you will always open the door. Don't think those immigrant people who come here don't understand anything. We're very educated, but we are, you know, we are, we're, we grow up in the culture and that's all we know. And here is a different culture. Like now, the legislative uh, get involved and all that stuff. So, so anyway, so, uh, so from, from baking baklava, uh, I joined the MCCPTA and uh, I started the first committee with the MCCPTA for uh, ESOL committee because my goal was to educate the immigrant uh, family how important it is to get involved in your child education. Mm -hmm. Don't blame the system, be involved and learn about it. Make sure this is your home. Uh, get involved. Uh, you're not going to lose your identity. They're not going to uh, convert you to something else. Uh, but uh, don't be isolated because isolation will break, will, will separation, you know. So you're going to be separated and living in your own world. So uh, after, uh, so I received a lifetime award from MCCPTA, and then I wrote an article on the MCCPTA newsletter saying PTA beyond baklava because it was the baklava that the way I got in, uh, and then I moved on. Uh, so from that, uh, I start learning about the community. Uh, the community concept does not exist in our culture, the Arab or Muslim community culture, uh, because when you're talking community, the uh, engagement, civic engagement, uh, my community is my mom and dad. I can't share anything to the PTA or do civic. We don't have civic duty. What are you talking about? We have the president for 30 years till he died. So we don't do election. We don't get involved in politics. And you're telling me to get involved? Come on, what is that? Are you crazy? I want to stay home and do nothing. You know, you do what you want. So that is the concept that we comes with. So can you imagine how hard it is for us to really get involved? So if you are having, uh, if you want to get to know your neighbor, food and art are the universal language. Uh, 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 create a subject around that. You will find so much similarity. Also, try to focus on what's similar among you than what's different um, uh, between, uh, among us. So, uh, so now uh, I joined the, uh, a lot of people uh, told me I have to run for public office. This is when I heard about Emerge Maryland and I, uh, I joined the program and I, 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 I want to recognize my friend here for my, uh, uh, Emerge. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, There's another uh, artist. 
Oh, really? Yeah. So, oh, could you? Oh, yeah, Emerge Sister. Yeah, Lily G. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Louisa. Yeah, that's MCCPTA. Yeah. Okay. So, so having, so this is my story. Now I start educating my community about the importance of getting involved and doing your civic duty, and hopefully uh, the Muslim woman will have their wings and fly and be an active uh, citizen. Thank you. Thank you. Emerge Maryland, if anybody's using their Google right now. <laughs> That's such a beautiful story. Thank and you. I love food and I love Apple. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we just want to thank uh, Delegate Jim Gilchrist, who just walked in the room. Thank you for coming. All right, so I have questions for Lorian. Um, how can we pressure the Montgomery County Council and the Board of Education to be sure there's equity in Montgomery County public schools? Is there, as you see it, a way to tie together the fortunes of all kids in MCPS to be sure that when we advocate for public school funding, we are truly serving all of our children, not just those in schools in the wealthiest districts? Thank you, Alyssa. So I'll give a bit of background for myself since I didn't get to really introduce myself. Um, both of my parents migrated here from Jamaica in search of a better life. My father was in the military. My mother was a social worker. And I think they always instilled in us that the great equalizer was education. So it's always been a passion of mine and my parents were very strict. It was church, school, and church and school again. <laughs> So when I had my daughter, I knew that I would be a fierce advocate for education and make sure that I had to make sure that she had everything that she needed so that she could succeed in schools. Um, we moved from Prince George's County to Montgomery County, so that was a very big difference for us, um, the two school districts. And moving here, we lived in North Bethesda. She started at Lux Manor Elementary School, and she was the only African-American child in her, in her class. This was third grade. This is also the grade where they determine which path your children will go. You take a test and it determines whether you're going to go to um, a magnet school or one of the specialized programs in schools. And so I really wanted my daughter to go into one of the um, language programs that they had. I didn't realize that there was so much controversy involved with these programs, that it's a, not just a lottery, but you know, it, you have to think about what your child's name was and could that have an effect on who was selected for this program. Um, since then, they've taken out those qualifiers, so you really can't tell. It just goes by the ID number, and then they will go through a lottery system. Um, they also have tests that the kids have to take, and so, being a parent, being very active in my daughter's school, I knew that um, I, I started to see some things that she wasn't doing really well. She was a straight A student before we moved here and her grades plummeted once we came here and I couldn't understand why. So I did what Mimi did. I, I went to school and unlike Mimi, I wasn't afraid to go to school. <laughs> so I went to school, I wanted to meet the teacher, I wanted to meet the principal, and I wanted to familiarize myself with the process. Never gone to um, 
a board of education meeting, never even imagined testifying, um, and found myself starting to testify at the board of education hearings. I wanted to know why my daughter couldn't get into this program and why other students couldn't get into the program and what they were doing to kind of level the playing field so that more students could have access. What classes would be available to train these kids and because my daughter just got there, could there be a concession made to allow her to test maybe later? Um, it didn't work out that way and fortunately she, she's done very well but I learned a lot. Um, during that time. Um, our schools are funded equally. Um, and while that sounds good, we have schools that have foundations. They have um, very well-staffed PTAs and foundations who raise a considerable amount of money to offset the cost that the Board of Ed funding doesn't always cover. But we also have schools with the 80% farms rate, which is the uh, free and reduced meals. Um, very high rates of free and reduced meals, and they're all funded the same. We have students who don't have the best resources to learn. They have outdated books. Um, they're learning in trailers. Their schools are overcrowded. So there's a lot of factors that can impede their progress. And so my thought on this, and we actually covered this. We just graduated from Leadership Montgomery, Charlotte and I. And we talked about equity and Reggie Oldeck. <laughs> and we talked about equity in classrooms. Um, we were talking about it with Hans and um, Jill. Jill Ortman Faust. Yes, she was in our class. And so we were wondering why schools aren't funded based on need, why they're funded blindly across the board. And I think until we go to the root cause of funding our schools equitably and going to the source of what that means, we're going to continue to have the same problems. The achievement gap has been an issue since before I came here. Um, it's going on 40 years and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and I don't see a realistic solution in sight. We keep throwing money at the problem and I haven't seen any changes in what we've done. We just raised um, the, the funding for the schools and there's not going to be a huge, a huge difference with addressing the issues with overcrowding, with addressing the, the, the gaps that exist. And it's always the black and the Latino students. And I just can't seem to understand why we're not you know, empowering our our, um, our kids with um, the tools that they need to succeed. Why we're not, you know, doing the homework club. When I was in Prince George's County, we had all of the paraeducators from homework club and um, uh, teachers who would come in and maybe teach reading, teach math, but there's not enough funding for those things. And if you're funding every school the same way and not going to the root cause, and not seeing how to treat a child in a particular way if we're not looking at uh, all the factors and really teaching the whole child, it's not going to change. So that, that's one, one aspect. Um, and it's really about advocacy. And it's not just about advocating because you're a parent, it's advocating because you own a home here. Mm -hmm. um, home values are affected by the way your school is performing. And so 
My daughter has graduated from um, high school, but I'm still very active in the PTA, the NAACP Parent Council. We just um, actually did our own high school foundation, our own um, foundation at Gaithersburg High School. And Delegate Gilchrist, he comes to the gala every year that we host, and we raise funds so that our students who need books to read or um, they want to send them to a STEM program. We have the resources now. And so if schools who are doing really well financially can adopt a school that isn't doing so well, then maybe we can start spreading the wealth and really uh, educating our kids more equitably. I'd say one more question for you and it touches on what you just mentioned. Okay. Um, we were wondering how does access to housing in the county affect women, particularly women of color? And what can we do to be sure that all women have access to affordable housing? Um, and actually, two questions, but they're similar. Okay. <laughs> um, how does the lack of affordable housing options for women, women of color, affect family wealth building long term? How many people remember psychology, Maslow's hierarchy of needs? <clears throat> So when you ask me that, Alyssa, I start thinking about the most basic needs are food, shelter, water. And I just, you know, I was a single parent before I met my wonderful husband. <laughs> and moving here to Montgomery County would have never been a reality had Montgomery County not had their um, affordable housing program. Um, we moved here, we were on a wait list before we moved, and it was the moderately priced dwelling unit that allowed me and my daughter to live in um, North Bethesda, send her to a wonderful school. Um, and I just can't imagine how I could have done that, you know, working full time, going to school full time, and taking care of a child. So I can't imagine how women who don't have a helpmate are surviving. I mean, we're not making the same as men, yet we're supposed to be feminists and we're supposed to, you know, be these strong women, strong and independent and self-sufficient women. And it's quite challenging to, you know, maintain a household when you are a single woman and you have so many other things. You have health care and our health care is a disaster. And I'm hoping for a great solution. And hopefully, we can finally get single payer um, and have universal health care for all of us. Um, but affordable housing, I live in the city of Gaithersburg, and we're having some issues with affordable housing. And it's not just you know women in general. It's our seniors, and our population is really aging, and especially single older women who are having trouble because they're thinking about retirement and they're thinking about you know what am I going to do now that I'm not working? I don't have the steady income. Where where can I go now? Um, and in the city of Gaithersburg, we actually have 15% um, of all new developments should have um, affordable housing set aside. And unfortunately, that's not how development is happening in our city. Um, we're having some developers are able to pay a fee and they are able to opt out of buying affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of um, our city council is making decisions that are depleting our affordable housing um, um, resources. stock resources. And so 
it, it's, it's really about being, you know, leaning on our elected officials and it's really the policy makers. And if we put this, you know, legislation in place and we're not fulfilling this need that exists in our community, it's not just women, it's not just, you know, older, the older community, but it's our children not having, you know, adequate places to sleep, to read, to, to cook food, and it just continues to degrade our communities. And so I, I, I hope that um, with new leadership and with better policies and really um, holding our elected officials accountable for, um, for you know, sticking to what the, um, the minimums are, 15% is not a huge sacrifice in ensuring that, you know, there's some people in our community that don't have the means still can have a roof over their head, so. Thank you. Before we get to Delegate Morales, we just want to say thank you to Colin for coming to uh, Roger Berliner, County Council President. Thank you. Yay! All right. So Delegate Morales, we were hoping you can touch a bit about touch a bit on uh, immigration, and we were wondering what we should do to be sure that Maryland remains a safe place for immigrants, and how we can help to advocate for undocumented people who may need the help of allies to seek out legal services or other services. Thank you for that wonderful question. I'll start off just by saying that when you're thinking about immigration issues, it's not just one race. An immigrant can be of different, different races. Um, and we're very, very proud that in Montgomery County, um, out of the 10 most diverse cities in the country, four of them are actually right here. Rockville, Gaithersburg, Silver Spring, and a missing German, German, German town. town. Yes, exactly. So we, as you know, and I think most of us that are in the room, um, have are either you know married to or our kids are going to schools with kids of immigrants. I mean, we're all interrelated. And if you think, if you hear about the trend that's coming here, something has to be attached to the schools and the education. And the way that you can empower immigrant families is you know because their first. Uh, interaction with government is the education system, is the school. So kind of, you know, just being aware of the language barrier, being aware of, you know, the Mimi's of the world, the Lorianne's of the world, and just, you know, inviting them to be a part of that, you know, first kind of government interaction. But I think, I think the question was, uh, you would like me to talk about the Maryland Trust Act. Yes. Um, so we, we, we put that in this session, and honestly, it got further than we thought for it having been the first year being introduced. So we had 85 co-sponsors. Um, you need 92 for it to be veto-proof, so that's, that's huge. So we had 85 Democrats, even in districts that are not you know, as progressive as Montgomery County, um, co-sponsored in the House. It's the Senate where it got a little, you know, and I hate to <laughs> throw it over there, but that's where we need to do some of the work, right, um, yeah, Senator? That's correct, yeah. In, yeah. In, the, in, the, in the Judicial Proceedings Committee, right. and we'll be doing that a lot. Um, coming up in this next session. It makes it for better for everybody when you include everybody's viewpoints, and that's that's also true with the press. I I've had I, I want to tear my hair out sometimes because uh, sometimes they have white guys just not anything bad against white guys because not all of them are bad. There are some good. No, no, no. I'm talking about. Um, 
No, we got some good reporters that are actually sensitive to our issues. Men, okay? But we also need to get uh, more report reporting from persons that understand our issues. And what better than, you know, some reporters of color and, and uh, women too, to get our perspective. Those are, that are going to do a full, comprehensive, substantive reporting on an issue, not just based on stereotypes, because some reporters won't even go and research the issue. Like I said, to just get some crackpot that looks like us, and, and they'll say, oh yeah, this is my blah, 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 and, it's, and, and then it just, uh, it, it taints the community. So everybody thinks that that's how our community thinks on an issue. It, our communities aren't monolithic. In fact, mm -hmm. with the Trust Act, we had some really ultra right-wing um, Asians out there that, that threatened me, threatened Marseille, um, sent some really nasty things to us, said selling, they're gonna throw us out in office, and, and, uh, and, uh, that, and the press reported it as if all, all of us think that way. So we just need diversity. And, and of course, uh, there, there are uh, reporters from the mainstream too, they're very good and they understand the issues. So I'm not saying that, you know, I just think let's add more diversity. Mm -hmm. and, and to you guys out there, you're, you're doing a good job to you, just by being here. I thank you for being here because you're here to uh, not only support us, but learn more about the issues. So thank you guys for being here too. All right, loud question in the back. <laughs> Yes. yes. My name is Laura Ford, and I just wanted to um, come back to the question about the rape culture and the difficulty that you had getting the legislation um, passed through before you ran out of time. And, and I stand here um, as a as a president of Montgomery County Commission for Women, and also as a social action coordinator for Delta for the state of Maryland for Delta Sigma Theta sorority, because we have supported this particular issue on the commission. We have written testimony. I have personally come to Annapolis to testify. Yes, it was very discouraging to see what happened happen um, this year. But also, um, from, from the perspective of Delta, I encourage them to put this as one of their Priorities. resolutions yeah. this year in our this year in our convention. It was it was raised as a resolution that Delta will focus on because Maryland's one of the few states that still doesn't have a position on this. So my question is, and I heard you say just be present and come at the table. What what can we do? Delta's come to Annapolis every year, yeah. and we've determined that we're coming too late based on something you said, we tend to come mid-March, late March, yes. and that's really too late. Yeah. The advocacy yeah. has to ta start now, before session begins. Before Sorry, can I, can I, yeah. Ladies, can I interrupt you for one second, just in case anybody who's here doesn't know what you're talking about, I just want to oh, clarify. Okay. I know we're all we're all nodding because we know and we think about it all the time. Um, do you want me to explain yeah, go the ahead. bill? Yes, the please. bill had to do with, with uh, repealing the, the parental rights of rapists. Uh, and because you know, who wants to see a rapist at a you know trial, you know, update trial custody thing? So um, yeah, back to school day. No, she was talking about camp, rape on campus. Campus. Oh no, no, she's, no, she's, she's talking about oh, yeah. yeah. Let me tell you, I I was the most frustrated when this mm -hmm. happened. What, you see, a lot of people, a lot of advocates don't know, or not advocates, but a lot of individuals don't know what goes on in Annapolis. How all this horse trading goes on. In, in, the, in this case, let me clarify what happened, okay? Uh, the House passed it, finally, under Kathleen DeMay's leadership, fortunately. Then it got over to the Senate, and it got changed. 
And uh, the way it got changed was horrible. A lot of us uh, women and the advocates hated it, but the, the women's advocates asked us to get this bill out, even though it wasn't the way we wanted it, because once you, you if, if we didn't pass the bill out of the Senate, it would have been dead for the entire year. So what we were expecting was the advocates said, please support this awful bill because it will be taken care of in conference. But unfortunately, it didn't get taken care of in conference, and that's why it died. But we're not going to step back. We're just going forward. We're going to work on this again. And come down again, please. But please start, start prior to, to uh, our session beginning. Work with like MLaw, with um, MC Now, and with the coalition of women's organizations that we have to do the advocacy right now. You need to go and advocate those, those individuals on the committee uh, to tell them they got to pass this thing and that anything else less would be unacceptable. But pass it with the good provisions, not the way that they wanted it to go through. And maybe I can talk with someone offline because we're doing this, so apparently we're not doing something. We're not doing enough. Are you working something. with now and, and working yes, with the Women's yes, Law Center? We're not doing this okay. in isolation. So there's something else that we need to be doing so that we can be effective. You probably need to be lobbying those, those committee, committee individuals members, yeah. who are opposed to passing this bill and who have been setting up roadblocks. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you know, you got, Mara's saying, now you got us, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, but you need to get those committee <laughs> members, particularly on the infamous House Judiciary Committee and the infamous Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee too. Maybe you can get some of your you. sisters from, from Howard and, and Baltimore counties. You know, we, we have problems. We, we need, we'll talk um, afterwards. You know, yeah. you know, the counties on the Senate Judicial, you, you've got to get your, your sisters from Harford County and from Baltimore County and make sure Baltimore City stays with us. You don't have to worry about Montgomery County. We're with you, okay? Uh, but you gotta get those other counties of those people on there, okay? And Prince George's too, okay? Thank you. All right, so how many questions do we have left? I see one, two, three. three. Anyone else? All right, so we're getting close to seven o'clock, so we're gonna take these three, starting yeah. with Dave um, and Julian, and then you over there. And I just wanna say that we'll be, we're, we're, we're also really, um, Yes, into the idea of helping get out the vote in places where we need to get out the vote. Mm -hmm. And we have lots of people here who are mobilized, who are progressive. And if we need to go knock on doors in people's districts whose last names begin with Z, then we're going to go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Who else? Yeah. Gabe. Gabe. Are you sure? Yeah, I grew up in a black church. I know how to shout. I know, I like your <laughs> <laughs> uh, Good evening, everyone. My name is Gabriel Asadar. I'm the president of the Association of Black Democrats, and I want to thank Montgomery County now for assembling uh, this inclusive panel to talk about racial justice, a uh, very important issue. Um, uh, my question uh, to the panel is twofold. One is that uh, women now account for a larger proportion uh, of our prison population. Mm -hmm. and we know that's nationally yes. as well as at the, at, the, at the state and local level. And then when we look at those numbers, when we break them down, the folks that are disproportionately impacted are women of color, black, Latino, yeah. as well as yeah. trans women, uh, trans women of color within the criminal justice system and how they're treated. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the efforts that you're working on in your respective capacities around criminal justice reform with the focus on women and how we can really deal with the issue of mass incarceration uh, and uh, 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 you know, the, the, um, the funneling of women from the streets or their homes into the criminal justice system? Uh, and my second question is around uh, economic uh, uh, equity. 
not equality because equality doesn't always equal equity. Um, but for us to talk about uh, the Fight for 15 movement, uh, and we know that you know raising the minimum wage that also helps a lot of single parent households, and the majority of single parent households are led by women. So, uh, what is your position in terms of uh, raising the minimum wage to? I think we uh, agree with you on all that, right? Point. Point. <laughs> I think uh, I think you do in your respective capacity yeah. around that as well. I, I think we've all been advocates on that. Oh, and too. as far as intersectionality, when there's a question earlier, really, I had to, uh, to talk about that. You know, some folks were talking about intersectionality between race and sex, and I want folks to understand that when we talk about intersectionality, going back to what Audrey Lord said, there's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. Right. That right. when we talk about intersectionality, it's not just race and sex, but also sexuality. It's also about economic a lot status. Of things. Yeah. It's also about documented status. Mm -hmm. It's also about immigration and so on and so forth. So just something to think of, but those are the questions. Um, just, I, just to, I don't want to steal the mic from these amazing women, but I just wanted to plug that um, NARAL Pro-Choice Maryland has um, begun working with uh, prisons and jails in Montgomery County and in Maryland to collect uh, sanitary products for women who are incarcerated. Um, Chelsea Yarbrough from NARAL Pro-Choice Maryland will be coming to speak at our next meeting on October 11th, and we'll be collecting unscented Maxi pads um, for those. Just since you asked the question, I wanted to give a plug for that program. If you can't come to our meeting, just Google Nero Pro Choice Maryland. Find out where you can donate those product, those menstrual products. They're very needed. Well, I, uh, Gabe, thank you for raising that. I, I do have a bill uh, this coming up session dealing with solitary confinement because it does affect a lot of women. And uh, we, we very often women and also women of color don't have that strong voice and you know there's nothing worse than solitary confinement actually for anybody and there's also a bill that I'll be working on dealing with labor trafficking because that really affects a lot of uh, immigrants and women of color because they do the most menial horrible jobs um, particularly on like on the east, east eastern shore uh, where they get exploited daily uh, they don't get their pay uh, from their contracts that they have and they don't have the same uh, employment rights as uh, citizens. Uh, so anyway, I'd love to get your support on those two bills. Thanks. Marissa, do you have anything you want? Sure. I, I no longer sit on the Judiciary Committee for different reasons. Um, you may imagine some of them. Um, <laughs> I'm in health and government operations, but I will say that the state of Maryland, um, we, in the state of Maryland, we passed the Justice Reinvestment Act um, and we eradicated mandatory minimums for nonviolent drug possession, um, so type charges, and we're moving in the right direction. But I will say that we haven't really focused on a woman's lens. Um, I think it was Delegate Mary Washington had the shackling of yeah. uh, pregnant prisoners. Ugh. That you know, it, it was 2016, and we were still we were still shackling uh, female prisoners when they were giving birth in in the jails in Maryland. Um, so with that, thanks, thanks, Gabe, for those for those questions. But um, I think in terms of you said mass incarceration and then the economic, the economic. Um, Delegate Morales and yeah. I also have uh, some human trafficking oh, bills that right. we'll be doing this year too. We'd love to get your support uh, to help the victim to uh, have single source of uh, services available to them. We're the prosecutors, we're law enforcement, but the social service agencies. They all work together to identify the victims and help them get out of this perpetual cycle of humans, bondage, and slavery. So with our human trafficking um, safe harbor work group with Senator Lee, 
Um, there's different efforts, but at, at the core of it, we're trying to treat you know, victims of human trafficking and if they're you know, forced into prostitution and sex labor, we want them to be treated as victims, not as criminals. And when it comes to um, actually allowing these, these, these folks to get back into society, you need to look at their, at their criminal records there, it's not just prostitution charges. It's, you know, other charges that are affiliated to, you know, their human trafficker force them to, you know, you'll see like petty theft, you'll see, you know, uh, cash checks, you'll see all these other. And so we need to get the state's attorneys association to be on board with with us because that's that's the biggest pushback. It's the state's attorney association, they don't want to give in because it makes their jobs, you know. Harder it's it's called a vacatur bill. It's a, it's a vacatur bill. For petty crimes that were committed because they were coerced by their trafficker Traffic. to do. So that's what we're trying to do. I'm sorry, I'm telling you that everyone laughs. Okay, we um, better go. I, I will say Montgomery County, County Council, yeah. human trafficking, they're doing a great job. And if you want to read more about what Montgomery County is doing to help women who are victims of human trafficking, you can find out on the County Council website. Yes. Thank you guys, thank these women who are so mean.